Welcome to Season 9 of American Political History, Wars Within Wars, Partial Peace. The winter of 1716 was filled with fear and despondency in South Carolina. Creek and Yamasee raids plundered the countryside at will. They killed any who strayed too far from the fortified plantations. Daniel Donovan would propose a new defense system of mobile rangers who would patrol the frontier traveling quickly from fortification to fortification. You see, forts alone will never answer the Indian threat. They are not designed for small parties of Indians who easily manage to travel between those fortifications undiscovered. Those smaller parties are more capable of doing mischief now than the greater body. This is my judgment, and I am sorry. It is confirmed by fatal experience. To remedy this evil, the best way, in my opinion, is to have parties continually patrolling the frontiers, paid to attend to this duty. That winter's defense expenditures would include a ranger captain, lieutenant, and 50 men equipped with hunting mastiffs. But the spring of 1717 would bring with it a smallpox epidemic, which economically and physically crippled the people of Charlestown. Spanish Florida, without resources to conduct their own offensive expeditions to South Carolina, decided to attempt to undermine the slave system. They would spread word to slaves of South Carolina that if they managed to get to Florida, the Spanish would reward them with freedom and land. This would have been effective if the southern native nations didn't police slaves for South Carolina. In the middle of this war, Creek warriors would return 14 escaped slaves to Fort Moore. The Creek warriors, technically at war with the South Carolina army, were paid for returning the colony's slaves. If a slave managed to evade capture and make their way all the way to Spanish Florida, they would receive their reward, Spanish enslavement and abuse. That winter of 1716, the guerrilla war continued. A Yamasee war party attacked the Summers Plantation in present-day Somerville, where they killed and captured several children before retreating. At the Thompson Plantation, they killed six indentured servants working the fields. They also killed dozens of travelers in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Chira, supplied by Virginia merchants, attacked the Winya factory. The harassment forced the factory to be moved further south to a more defensible location. That winter, merchants would start traveling in guarded pack horse trains, which would become the norm until the end of the war. South Carolina's economy was in complete freefall. Food was scarce, inflation was rampant. The Carolina Assembly attempted to increase its revenue by raising taxes and printing money, both of which compounded the economic situation. The two pre-war cornerstones of the economy, the Indian trade and cattle ranching, had completely collapsed. Ranching plantations had been the vanguard pushing out west, which now made them undefendable. The few merchants alive had restored about one-tenth of the pre-war trade, but their only trade partner was the Cherokee, who shopped their prices against Virginia merchants. The only bright spots were production of naval goods, pitch, pine tar, and turpentine, also rice production. Both of these industries required back-breaking labor, working outside in the elements exposed to malaria. Having lost their consistent supply of native slaves, their populations turned to importing African slaves from the West Indies. South Carolina would steadily import more and more African slaves during and after the Amnesty War. By 1717, the Carolina Assembly 
once again was cutting the funding for its army, reducing it from 400 to 140, including reducing Fort Moore's garrison to just 16 soldiers, and eliminating all garrisons except for Fort Moore, Port Royal, Fort Congaree, and Fort Johnson. In May of 1717, the Creek reached out to Carolina for peace talks. Captain John Jones was assigned and sent to receive one of the most powerful Creek sachem, known as Emperor Brims. Emperor Brims would tell Captain Jones that the Creek were angry at the Yamasee for bringing them into this war, but that South Carolina's continued military sales to the Cherokee endangered Emperor Brims' ability to conduct peace talks, and that Carolina should reconsider their stance with the Cherokee if they want peace with the Creek. He also boasted that he had recently received a delegation from the Seneca. They had discussed the possibility of the Iroquois joining with the Creek and attacking the Cherokee and Catawaba. If the Iroquois joined the war and defeated the Cherokee, it should be assumed they would look to South Carolina as their next easy target. Captain Jones sent Colonel Musgrove to tour Creek villages and gather a census of how many sachems were willing to agree to peace with South Carolina. Colonel Musgrove was related to the Creek through marriage and of his mixed-race son, so his presence was tolerated in Creek territory. Colonel Musgrove learned that the Spanish had been sending delegations to the Creek as early as 1715, trying to persuade the southernmost Creek nations that their future should be with the Spanish. The Spanish had struggled in their negotiations with the Creek because they failed to understand that the Creek were highly interested in a trade agreement, but were not interested in becoming Spanish subjects. Incorporated into these negotiations was the wedding ceremony of Johnny Musgrove and Mary, the niece of Emperor Brims. In 1717, Emperor Brims sent a delegation to Charlestown to negotiate a formal peace treaty. Charlestown hosted this delegation with all the pageantry it could muster, escorting them with the governor's personal guard, the militia firing muskets and cannon salutes. Speeches were made, gifts were exchanged, and they shared food and rum. The basic outline of the treaty was negotiated. South Carolina would immediately renew trade with the Creek, and the Creek would stop all raids into South Carolina territory. Initially, to appease the Cherokee, South Carolina would only sell non-weapons and ammunitions to the Creek. But within months, over the objections of the Cherokee, South Carolina would resume selling weapons to the Creek. Emperor Brims would then discuss with the other Creek sachems a new strategy, that of keeping their nation from taking any side of the three European powers. They should maneuver to get the Europeans to fight each other. The Amasee had inflicted wounds to South Carolina, but they had been mauled in return. A pre-war census estimated the Yamasee population around 1,200. When they immigrated to Spanish Florida after the war, the Spanish estimated their population to be around 600. That is a loss of half their population in three years. Louisiana's governor, John Baptiste de Bienville, took full advantage of the war that had engulfed the South to expand his colony. He built Fort Toulouse, among the Alabama nation in 1717. He established the new settlement of New Orleans in 1718. The French would begin to establish forts from the Great Lakes down the Mississippi, creating a large arc to box the English on the Atlantic seaboard. But there was little that South Carolina could do in the middle of an existential war of survival to counter the French's expansion in the South. By 1720, the South Carolina population's attitude towards the proprietors was completely mutinous. 
They delivered their grievances backed with evidence to Whitehall. The proprietors embezzled money from the colony, failed to follow British laws, and have avoided the Navigation Acts. The king had given them proprietary rights over this colony, but in the time of greatest need they have abandoned the colony, leaving the king's colony near bankruptcy and unable to produce revenue for the crown. In London, the South Carolina delegate, John Barnwell and Joseph Boone worked to convince Whitehall to bring South Carolina protection of the king. Francis Nicholson was appointed as Provisional Royal Governor of South Carolina. Nicholson was a capable soldier with considerable colonial experience, having previously served as Lieutenant Governor of New York, Governor of Maryland, Virginia, and Nova Scotia. John Barnwell had also convinced the Lords of Trade that the best strategy was to build forts on South Carolina's frontiers, but this idea was squashed by the King's Privy Council as too expensive and too complicated. Barnwell adjusted the plan for a single fort to be built along the Altamaha River in present-day Georgia. He even convinced Whitehall to send a company of regulars with engineers to supervise the construction, along with skilled craftsmen, brickmakers, masons, and carpenters. John Barnwell would soon come to realize easy negotiations with Whitehall are often not what is expected. In South Carolina, Barnwell would receive Whitehall's company, comprised of a hundred invalids physically unable to perform in combat or participate in the construction of the fort. Regardless, South Carolina would begin construction of Fort King George along the Altamaha River in present-day Darren, Georgia. Construction would be slow and arduous. In the miserable summer conditions of the Georgia heat, days filled with mosquitoes, dysentery, and malaria. The fort was completed in September 1721 and garrisoned with 50 men. Spain would send a delegation to Charleston and to London to officially protest construction of Fort King George in Spanish territory. This complaint was politely ignored. The Spanish also complained that South Carolina should order its vassal native nations, the Creek, to end hostilities with Spanish Florida and her native allies. In London, with no real conception of the geopolitics of the South, or want to understand them for that matter, they ordered Governor Nichols to cease such actions and figure out how to come to terms with the amnesty. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share the show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.